What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Ubuntu Nutrition Podcast. Today, I have a two-part series with Mark Germain, who is a research-based practitioner. That basically means he works as a researcher on several studies, but also as a performance nutritionist with several senior-level GAA clubs. Today's episode is all about nutritional considerations for GAA athletes. Very, very interesting. So sit back, relax, and listen up. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back. I just took a sip there of my zero-calorie soda, flavored like ginger root beer. It has zero sugar, no caffeine, and it's sweetened with stevia. That's America for you. I have pretty much everything. So, this is a great episode. And I know I say that for every episode, but I don't give a fuck. It is long-winded, so I won't stay too long here. But I do want to continue this little trend that I've started of... Oh, sorry. Telling a little anecdote or story that's not necessarily related to nutrition, but may have some, I don't know, connection or deeper message that you can apply to your diet or your health or your lifestyle. So here in uh, the States, in Boston, in the city, there is uh, every Wednesday, there's street cleaning, right? So when you park your car, there's a sign pretty much everywhere, um, street cleaning every second and fourth Wednesday or every first and third Wednesday. So either side of the street, one will be first and third, one will be second and fourth. Anyway, my car basically was dead when I went to start it and it was completely dead. And I have no idea what was wrong with it. It's a brand new battery. And it was parked in the space that's about to get street cleaned. So I had a friend come and help me jump start it. So jump started it, let it sit there for a while, um, charge the engine up again, you know, or charge the battery up again using the engine, obviously. And then the next day I went out to drive it and it was even like more dead where there didn't, there wasn't even a flicker, the radio didn't come on, nothing like that. And just basically I found out at the end of it that I had a charger plugged in to the cigarette charger port and so basically what I'm, the, the message here was that, yeah, this is cringy, it's cringy as fuck, but I tried to fix the surface level problem of the car being dead and I neglected the fact that the charger was still in there draining the battery. So whilst it worked for the day and I drove and it was fine, when I parked it again, that charger continued to drain the battery and it actually ended up worse and more dead in the first day so when we apply this to something like our diet and nutrition uh, maybe I'm looking at more people who ha might have an, a poor relationship or a damaged relationship with food and with a, a diet soda in my hand or a zero calorie soda these are often times the the first steps for those people and when I say those people I'm one of those people because I've had that before I've experienced it where they get low calorie foods dieting foods, zero carb, things like that. Um, they're bandages, right? They're temporary bandages. And they're not going... So I feel like the main market for these products is it's capitalizing on people's want to, to binge or to eat a lot of these foods or drinks and have less damage or regret because they're low calorie low carb um, you know what I mean so they're not doing anything to help your relationship like why are you needing to eat a lot or binge a lot why are you not eating mindfully are you stress eating is that one of your comfort foods is that one of your outlets are you not identifying the triggers that sends you towards food and they are the first they should be the first steps and then I think these things are great little additions when you're subbing them in for something that you habitually consume that might be impairing your progress. But also, they can be used as diet aids. So when you're, when you're dieting, 
you can add these things in as like so for me these diet sodas you know it gives me like the idea that i'm not really restricting myself not that i'm dieting or anything like that but getting a taste of soda is like oh you're not really on a diet you're not restricting yourself you know you're this is a normal diet and i mean i've talked to many people that are operating in the world of behavior change and one of the things that they always come back to is telling yourself that you're not not allowed to have something can be beneficial for successful behavior change right and so going back to the car example along with the diet soda i have in my hand and if we can apply this to our diet and lifestyle as a whole before going to the surface level issues and patching them up temporarily right with low calorie foods sodas things that you can eat a lot of things that you can snack on constantly without putting on weight go to the main issue or try to find it if you haven't already try to identify it take some time write something down maybe see someone see someone that's uh trained in cognitive behavioral therapy so in the car example that's the charger right if i keep charging the battery it doesn't matter because that charger is going to keep draining it try to address that right and then maybe zoom out and start putting those bandages on it's like cleaning the wound before dressing it you know um so that's that's a little example and i wish i articulated it a bit better going on seven minutes now but i i I thought that was powerful so today's episode is a performance nutritionist so again nothing to fucking do with today's episode so i probably should have saved it for another one but i don't care mark germain who is he labeled himself as a research-based practitioner and i thought that was class so definitely use that in the future basically what it means is and it's essentially the definition of evidence-based right he works and operates as an academic and is currently working on several research studies while also as he works as a performance nutritionist for several high-level GA teams Um, he'll mention them like the Dublin senior hurlers and also with several combat sport athletes so what does that tell us that tells us that Mark not only works in the scientific field and is up to date on the most recent evidence right but he's also on the ground level and observing how and coming up with new ways of how this science can be integrated or incorporated into actual training and you know coaching strategies right and that is truly the definition of evidence-based if you listen to my podcast with um, alan argon a while back he basically defined the evidence-based approach as that being able being equipped in both of those areas because all the research in the world is useless if you do not know how to integrate it or apply it in a way that players will actually be able to stick to and then on the other side giving players uh the easiest or uh most of i don't know the the plan or strategy that might seem the best is useless and can even be dangerous if it's not based in science if there's no evidence behind it so you need to integrate the two and it's so funny because that's exactly what i'm trying to do with this podcast is bring you guys evidence-based science in a way that you can actually listen to without being like fuck this guy he's just trying to show off all his big words okay nine and a half minutes jesus i'm done talking this is a class episode it's separated into two parts because we i asked them just a ton of questions so I had a plan for it we kind of deviated off that and i just asked a bunch of questions pertaining to uh, nutritional strategies for ga athletes both male and female so we didn't we didn't stick with one gender obviously um really really informative honestly can't recommend it enough and i also can't recommend enough this program that 
he and uh, his colleague David Nolan have put together. Very affordable, and it's for, uh, I think it's pre-season GAA program. Um, I went to college with his colleague David, studied sports science with him, and I can honestly say when I saw the two of them pairing up on that, I was like, oh, fuck, that's going to be very, very uh, valuable. So definitely check that out and he gives a he gives a mention of that at the end of the second part so yeah hope you enjoy the episode and without further ado mark germain all right so welcome everyone to another episode of the ubuntu nutrition podcast and today i have mark germain who is a performance nutritionist as well as a researcher in the area but i'll let him introduce himself so thanks very much for coming on mark Thanks very much for inviting me on, Patrick. Um, so just for our listeners, if they don't know, as you said, I'm a performance nutritionist uh, and I mainly work in the area of combat sports, but also with Dublin GAA as well, with, primarily with the Dublin Senior Hurlers. And then the way I kind of describe myself is a, is a research active practitioner, um, but that I mean that I'm an active practitioner um, in terms of delivering performance nutrition support to athletes. But then I also maintain a research role. And my kind of philosophy is that being a practitioner will hopefully enable me to ask better research questions. So then we're able to get generate better research, which is more applicable to the field. And then from being involved in research, hopefully, you know, I have my finger on the pulse of all the one new research, but also it's almost like a, a bullshit detector, you know, that kind of way. So if you're on, if you have your finger on the pulse and you're engaged in, in, in research, you kind of you're able to spot what is the nonsense and which is the stuff which might actually have some promise. So I kind of, and I've heard other people kind of describe it as pracademic. So you're like a practitioner slash academic. What was the term? Research active practitioner. Yeah, research active practitioner. That's how I prefer it. Kind of. Australia. And I kind of I had tip to kind of James Morton because like when I, I just like for people I studied in Liverpool John Moore's University and people like James Morton would have had a big influence on kind of my outlook and my philosophy of how I approach um, nutrition and both, re, both nutrition practice and also research as well. That's awesome. Um, I'm actually doing the online diploma in sports nutrition and he's like one of the main lecturers on it and honestly I can say with confidence that he's the best lecturer I've ever listened to. It's unbelievable. He's a kill Yeah, he's a yeah, kill Yeah, yeah. Very, I can very suave. But he does well at connecting the two worlds. Like, he's never going to be going in there just giving you 50 minutes of theory. He's always yeah. connecting it through and showing you what it looks like on the ground. Yeah, and, and he's got the experience in elite sports as well. So as well as being a... Prof- I think he's one of the youngest professors in, in um, sport and exercise science. But as well as that... He also has worked at Liverpool Football Club. He's worked with world-level um, professional fighters. Um, more recently, he did five years at Team Sky where they were winning Tour de France. So he's got, he's got the research experience and he's got the practical experience. And it's just, he's, like you said, he's a very good person to, to learn from. And every time you li- even even if I, I listen to him, every time even I listen to him, you learn something new, you know? He's yeah. one of those people. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, and he, he does have a very... It's easy to listen to as well. Like he has it very cool and controlled. Yeah. But uh, I might send him a little voice clip of this and be like, "Come yeah. on, man, you'll have to come on the podcast now." <laughs> he might. He, he might. He's he he. If um he's he's very rece- responsive and very he is, very yeah. receptive. Like he's um he's very good. He's a lot of time for everyone. He's he's a very cool cool guy. He is. Yeah. Yeah. He's anytime I've gotten onto him, he's gotten back to me. Um. Just before moving on from there, I had Alan Aragon on the podcast and he, I asked him to basically break down what evidence-based meant. And he basically defined it as what you are. I I, just from listening to that there, just like you can't be too heavy focused on the area of academia or the research or the mechanistic side of things, but also you can't be too focused on the practical without having that information base. You have to be able to combine the both of them. Yeah, I think Lauren Bannock, I think, did a a prof doc in this area as well, didn't he? And it is like sometimes if you're almost too academic, you can can almost discount some of the the real world stuff because we don't have all the, like, who was it who said this? Was it, I think it was, might have been Dara O'Brien, the comedian. And he says, you know, people say, you know, science doesn't have all the answers. And it doesn't because if science did have all the answers, it would just stop. You know, there would be no more science. And the reason that there's, there's so many more questions and so much more science going on is because there's still so much we don't know. 
So then, so that obviously means that there is potentially some value be, to be taken from stuff in the field, which we just don't haven't studied in research or we just don't know about. And that's why like, so research questions then, if you kind of have a foot in the field, research questions don't just come from researchers. Research questions might come from coaches or athletes or other practitioners in different disciplines. And then you can start getting these, like I was saying, you kind of ask better questions and hopefully you drive mm. research, which has a better impact on what's actually happening in the field. Absolutely. And what's feasible is a big thing. Like hopefully we'll get yeah. into some of that with the footballers, but all, you know, you could, you could have the best practice outline from the best design study and then you bring it to your athletes and they're like holy fuck i don't have the time for that i can't do that yeah actually myself and um brendan egan were chatting recently and they were saying that like sometimes as a practitioner you sacrifice what might be scientific best practice for what's most pragmatic you know so sometimes you're doing stuff in practice and like if you put your science hat on you're like yeah, and there's probably not like a lot of science to support that, but in practice, it makes sense and yeah. it makes it easier. So, because even you know, when you hear about you know, a oh, post anabolic window, and you've got to like people are saying, Oh, it's pro science, you have to get stuff in 30 minutes after. And the science is, is pretty clear that you know, you don't have to consume protein like straight away after exercise. But if you've got a, a match and you're training in a couple of days and you, you've, you've got a certain amount of food to get in, well, then. It, practically it makes sense to consume something you know after the game because if you don't well then you've got all of this x amount of calories or x amount of carbohydrate which has to be consumed and the, the less time you're basically giving yourself less time to consume it in which is kind of reducing the practicality of you know your recommendations saying you've got to eat this much by this time etc yeah yeah wow very interesting yeah yeah i completely agree um cool so i suppose we will dive in um so maybe i'll get you on in the future to talk about the mma side of things but i suppose for this a lot of my listeners will be in uh, ga so either hurling or football so maybe we just focus on a bit about your your work there and kind of what you've learned from from your experience there yeah, yeah? No problem. so first off just maybe if you give a quick summation of like your work with dublin uh and how you work as a performance nutritionist and what teams you work in yeah. So you mean like in a team by teams, you mean like multidisciplinary team, like all the background team? No, just like in general, what you like, what uh, sports clubs you work with. Just give okay, a, yeah. yeah, just a quick yeah. summary and then we'll dive in. So my main club then will to spend most of my time with is the Dublin Senior Hurlers. Um, and I'll be there, like it's an amateur sport, so it's not full time, but I'm there on a like quote unquote full time basis. So by, by that, I mean that, you know, I'm at every training session and I, I was at every game before the COVID rest- restrictions come in, so that I'm I'm not. It's probably with some clubs in GAA, you'll often get where a nutritionist comes comes in like once a week or once a month because the budget isn't there in GAA to support that stuff. But you know, I kind of because it was my first year, um, I made a conscious decision that I'm going to be at every training session and I'm going to be at every match because I want to build relationships with the players. Um, because as a performance nutritionist i don't know i don't know how much value you get if someone just comes coming in and doing nutrition talk the other time versus someone who's embedded uh, as a member of the team and when i'm at training sessions you know sometimes i actually most of the time i haven't got a, a like a, a nutritionist doesn't have like a, a physical role at a training session you know you're not yeah. giving people food in the middle of session or you're not menu planning in the middle of sessions so there's a couple you kind of break this down in two aspects. The gym sessions are pretty good because when people are doing gym sessions, if you've got a collective group session, you'll get a lot of time where people are taking breaks in between sets and they'll come over and talk to you. And then you can get chatting about nutrition. People will ask questions. It's a pretty good environment. And that's why even like if people are studying nutrition and so on, you'll often hear people, or their mentors saying, you know, be in and around the gym room because that's when you'll get a lot of people talking to you. A lot, to, a lot like the way that a lot of people will talk to the physios when they're on the physio bed getting after. So the gym room is a good opportunity there. But when you're on pitch sessions, it's a little bit harder because players don't take breaks during pitch sessions. It's, it's coach driven. You know, you're doing sessions. You might get like a 30 second water break. So you're not. It's not quite the same environment for. You know, it's not as easy to build relationships. But Another thing was what I'll do is 
I kind of you, you want to be seen as a, a team player like you want to be a, a productive member of the team so I always try make an effort as best possible to help out the kit man like setting out the cones picking up the slitters you know if players have like empty water balls or run and fill up the water ball doing kind of like dog work which you wouldn't you know traditionally consider as a role of a nutritionist but you want to help out as much as possible so you're doing all these little bits and and I'm I think that kind of made a, a big impact for me in building a relationship with the the kit man initially because in my opinion the kit man is one of the most influential and important people in the team especially particularly in Dublin anyway. he's fantastic he does everything for everybody and I actually recall a couple of months ago it was earlier on this year that the Daily Mail, I can't remember the name of the writer, but in, in England anyway, but he was he wrote an article talking about the you talking about the salaries of um performance and it wasn't performance staff, but it was about club and then he it was like in the headline it was like thirty thousand pounds to wash wash kits. And that actually annoyed me because I know how much the kit how much work the kit man does and you know it's kind of dwindle it down to as someone washing kits is just it's it's it, it's the, it tells you how little that person who wrote the article knows about what happens in the, in the club. Like the, we described the kit man in Dublin he's, as the, the custodian of the culture. So, you know, he's, he's very embedded in wow. the culture of the team. So he drive, he's very important in driving the culture. He's got an excellent relationship with everybody from players to management. He's just, so for me going in, like, so the gym sessions obviously helped me kind of be in there, start building some relationships with the players. Well, being on the pitch then it kind of helps you build those kind of other relationships that, you know, particularly with kit man or assistant kit man or the coaches, like you, like you finish with them cones, like you're running around picking up stuff. It's, it's just like little things like that, which you may not think make a difference, but they do, they do make a difference. Like it doesn't go unnoticed when you're doing work like that. Yeah, that's all I'll say. Um, and then I suppose another point that I'll mention is that we're lucky at Dublin and that, well, pre-COVID anyway, that we'd have catering after every training session. So we'd have a catering service would come and then we'd sit down and eat together. And in my first couple of months, weeks, months, I always made an effort to not sit with the coaches. But I went and sat with the players because the way I kind of said it to some of the coaches was that, you know, when they're on the pitch, I kind of view it as the coach's time with the players. When they're in the gym, I kind of view it as the strength conditioning coaches with the players. When they're sitting down having food, it's, it's an opportunity for me to sit there and kind of, one, build relationship, but, you know, you kind of get an idea for what people like or food, what people don't like. And then you can kind of um, turn it into like an informal Q&A in that you kind of, oh, yeah, you might go, oh, do you struggle to eat on match? Someone might not be eating something, and you're like, oh, do you struggle? Do you normally struggle to eat on match day? And then you might start getting an issue where someone doesn't like this type of food or they struggle to eat on match day or they struggle to do this on certain certain day. And I think, like, if you can get, like, just one meaningful conversation or one meaningful piece of information every time you're sitting down at a meal, it just kind of helps you understand the needs of the squad a little bit more beyond just understanding quote-unquote the actual scientific physiological demands you actually start under understanding the individual demands within the team wow wow that's really that's really a nice bit at the end there um i suppose also what it could do is i suppose build trust in that you're not just a coach that's going to run back to management with every if if a player tells you i don't know uh, they're not getting enough sleep or they're not hydrating properly or maybe they're consuming alcohol or something like that you're building trust that you're one of them. You're not going to just run back to the head coach, you know, the manager and say, here, hold on. Cause that's actually a problem I've experienced yeah. with football teams I've worked with. I have to sit them down and say, look, I'm not going to go and talk about what, what you're doing with the coach. You know, I'll tell them how you're progressing, but I'm not going to share every little detail. So you can trust me with that. Would you find that as well? Yeah. I, I think like, um, trust and rapport is really important for a nutritionist because you, you can't monitor everything that people eat um so you, you there's a good uh, saying in kind of sports sciences that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care so unless you kind of build that trust and build that rapport people aren't going to buy into anything that you're saying or telling them they're not going to build that little trust in you i actually have an interesting anecdote on what you're saying there because i had a really um tricky situation and it was tricky because i was dealing with a 16 year old 
so he's technically underage. So I was doing what, what I was kind of saying there is that we had these kind of informal um, sessions where we'd, it was with like kind of the RFU development squads and part of the kind of structure was that we'd sit down with them and eat meals. So it might be dinner, it might be lunch, but we'll sit around the table and, you know, they, they'll end up asking you because you're a nutritionist kind of representing the RFU type of thing. And I had a really interesting one where a player was flagged, it flagged like a medical thing. Um, like I won't go into the details. I probably can go into details now, but it was something to do with like if he, if he ate something or didn't eat something before a match, he was getting lightheaded and dizzy. Uh, and he was like, oh, the S&C coach just told me to have a protein shake before. And, you know, I was kind of like, he didn't want to say it to the coaches because he was afraid that they, they just dropped him. They wouldn't play him. Yeah. And he didn't want, so he didn't want to say it to the coach. I wasn't part of this team. I was kind of like, uh, just like uh, in, in brought in for these sessions. He, so he, he said it to me. He was asking for advice. Some of the other players then around the table were like, you know, you should get that. You should be getting that checked out. So I was left then in a difficult situation because, like you said, I didn't want to break this guy's trust. You know, mm. he, he, he spoke to me and he spoke to me specifically because he didn't want the management or coaches to know because he was afraid that they'd just drop him. But at the same time, I've got this, a 16-year-old kind of giving me information which is potentially dangerous for his health. Or, mm. you know, if someone is playing rugby, this was rugby, and he's feeling dizzy and lightheaded in the middle of the game, you know, and he's going to be involved in collisions you know, I've, I viewed this as a risk. So in that situation, I had like a superior like above me. So I went to the superior. I was like, like, I've got this situation. Um, so I spoke with him and then he said, like, well, because you're dealing with one of the 16 year olds, we probably have a duty of care to relay this information back to the club. And to be fair, the club were, were, were brilliant. They sat, I sat, sat down with the coaches to the coaches had a chat with us so we could identify the player. We didn't want to just go over and like pick out somebody. And then it was kind of, they kind of got the doctor to do like a, like a medical lead kind of question and answer instead of like picking the guy out and, you mm. know, targeting them. It, it worked out well in the, in the end, but it was definitely, definitely a very tricky situation to deal with at the time, you know, because like, as you were saying, the trust component and I didn't want to break the trust and yeah. that and that type of thing. Yeah, well, that's huge if it's, I suppose, like you say, if it's something medical and if it's a, like an under 16. Um, and just a, a huge thing with that is like, if they're afraid to disclose everything that they're doing, like especially you probably work with some college students, right, that are like in the elite sphere. If they're not disclosing everything they're doing, their full lifestyle, you're not going to be able to give them sound advice based on what they need because you're not getting the whole picture. And so that trust, I, yeah, that trust is so important. Like, yeah, I I've I used to do the the scholarship in in Liverpool, and I'm nearly sure I had um, students coming in either still drunk from the night before or not, and like that, it's hard because you you're kind of think, I was like, you know, are you all right? And they don't want to say anything, but you know that something's not right. Uh, so you do get stuff like that, particularly as you're saying when you're working with university level, where there's a, there's almost like if if they are high level. Sometimes there's a battle between, you know, typical university life and pursuing kind of sports slash elite level. And sometimes they can clash. Sometimes people choose, just they want to do regular university life and that's fine. Like, you know, that's fair enough. That's their decision. Yeah. But then if, if people do want to pursue that kind of elite route and are kind of seeking for advice and sometimes you might need to have like, well, if, if this is the route that you want to go down, you might want to, at least around competition time and training time, you might want to tighten your belt if putting around these areas. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. Cool. Cool. So, um, talking now, I suppose we'll go specific into nutrition for, for GA. Um, and I suppose we look at not football or hurling kind of specifically, but, uh, they'll, they'll obviously differ in some ways, but they're quite, quite comparable in others. So maybe, um, there's not like, there's not a huge amount of research around these sports and the, the physiological demands specifically for these sports. There is emerging research. I've looked into it myself, but how come are they comparable to other major sports for which there is like a body of evidence? Um, and if not, how do they defer? Yeah, so it's a, it's a difficult one. I think GA is something which you'll see even in the research in the last two, three years is that 
the demands of GEA are changing in that the game seems to be getting more intense. But in the same vein, the demands of other sports are also seem to be getting more intense. So mm. a lot a lot of the time what they'll use because there's a lot of research and it's a team sports field is soccer. But from like 2006 up until like 2016, the demands of soccer have increased in that maybe not massive amount of distance, but the intensity in, in the game itself, you're getting more sprints and, uh, and sprint duration and so on, accelerations. So you're seeing something similar because I have a friend who's doing research in um, referees in GA. And even you'll see, you're seeing like 50% increase in intensity from like 2018 to 2019. Wow. Um, and I think, I think, like, you're, I think you were seeing this, actually watching on the television in that the last, especially, you know, the Dublin era, you know, we've kind of noticed that Dublin kind of kicked on in terms of fitness, but like Mayo are very fit team now, Kerry are a very fit team now. So I think teams in GA are getting a lot more fit. And I think as a result, you're going to start seeing the demands or the demands of the game are increasing as time's going on. Mm. So, so what I often do is I, I look at, our own team's GPS. Um, so we have like our own, like we monitor every training session uh, and every match. So at least we know what the demands of kind of our championship and league games are ourselves. And we can kind of make internal decisions based on that. Because then at least you're not relying on published research of a, of a variety of different teams. You're kind of getting specific to one, your team, and also the present moment. You're not waiting for years down the line when it's actually published. But there are some differences when you're trying to translate um, the demands of of GA versus soccer, for example. So, like the obvious one is that there's a massive time difference, you know, 20 minutes, which is pretty big in terms of actual game time. Uh, but the other one is like pitch dimensions as well. So you can get changes in the pitch dimension, dimensions. But probably another big one that you won't that you won't probably pick up as much as some of the research is starting to publish in now is the positional specific demands and that, you know. Wing backs, midfielders, and sometimes forwards can be quite active in soccer. But like GA, your kind of half, your full back and full forward lines are a lot less active than your half forward, um, half back slash midfielder lines. And I suppose it's an interesting question: is do the demands? Well, I'm I'm thinking about nutrition. Do the fuel and demands then differ? And like the logically, you would assume yes. But in terms of science, we don't really have the answer. And I suppose it can be a little bit tricky because uh, sometimes like in a GAA match, you might have someone who's man-marking the full forward, but due to tactical reasons, that full forward ends up playing in half forward line, so you're dragged all over the pitch. So it's very hard to kind of pinpoint if on a game-by-game basis um, if there are kind of individual fueling requirements based on the demands of the game. I think it's something else which sometimes the papers don't highlight well enough is the added demands of your warm up plus mm. warm down, yeah. Because because I because like that I've gone through the literature as a as as a looking at hurling and um, football, and what I when I compare that to the GPS data that we have is there's a massive difference because you're doing you're doing an extra two three kilometers worth of warm up as well, which is adding additional demands onto the the game. You might look at the the paper says 10 kilometers, but then you're looking at your GPS data and you're doing 14, someone else doing 15 kilometers. So there's a big difference there in the amount of work being done. Uh, what was I, I was going to say something else on top of that. Yeah, and that that could potentially have kind of um, fueling demands in itself. Like if you're doing, I know like, for example, I have a friend who was going to be looking at wearing or researching compression garments with heat going in them to try to warm up the muscles reducing the need for an extensive warm-up because there's a potential glycogen demand from just doing the warm-up itself before you even start competing in the game. So there are are these kind of considerations which probably aren't highlighted very well when you're reading the paper because the aim of the paper is to describe the demands of the game itself. Wow, yeah. I know Brendan Egan's done some presentations and things on the importance of the warm-up as well. I've looked at some of his stuff, but it's, yeah, it's huge. That's very interesting, though, that there's such a difference between published papers because they refuse, not refuse, but they overlook that period. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I suppose because it's technically not part of the game. Yeah. Um, so when you're just, you're just doing game, game demands, but I think so, 
which is fine from probably like a physiological point of view because you're trying to from a training perspective you're trying to train for the demands of this period and um, but if you're thinking about fueling you do you know another problem with fueling is that like if you look at soccer there's um there's a couple of good papers which have done biopsy studies and you can kind of see what are their glycogen demands there's nothing like that in GA. i'd be very surprised if we got something like that in GA um muscle biopsy studies like with, with in terms of nutrition in GA, most of the research at the moment is just essentially describing nutrition intake you know oh, so okay. it's not even yeah yeah like so there's um luke o'brien was, was doing a phd with liquid hope i think he's done some of it now describing kind of the kind of carbohydrate intake and energy intake during during gea players and there's been some other papers describing the macronutrient and energy intake of ga players the day before a game but there hasn't been a lot kind of assessing the fuel and requirements of ga there's been somewhere they've done like you know typically there's like a third quarter drop off in performance and if you do like scheduled carbohydrate intake and that you're given carbohydrate you can kind of prevent that decline but that's about as kind of game specific um, and i think that i've seen in, in nutrition research and ga at the moment yeah yeah um and just for i suppose the very general listeners the importance of that 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 Marx is talking about is if you're fueling for the work required of a football match, a 70 minute match, and you're overlooking a two to three kilometer fairly high intensity warm up, you know, it's progressively higher intensity. I've seen, like, I watch GA warm ups, especially at the senior level, and they're fucking, they're intense. Um, you're going to come into that match. If you fueled for the work required of the match, you're going to come into that match at a lower level or slightly depleted um, and that could be a reason for maybe not performing to the, the best of your ability but um if so if we go to more so, some general based on that some general takeaways for people what would be some overarching strategies it doesn't have to be very specific you know strategies but pillars of performance nutrition that you give to your ga athletes just some general yeah. ones so I think you mentioned a good one there, which might be worth kind of explaining is that kind of fuel the work required uh, because we don't fuel our players the same for a training session as we might for a match, as you were alluding to there. So you'll have scheduled training sessions. You know, you might have a high intensity training session on a Tuesday. You might have a lower intensity on a Thursday before a match. And then you might have a match on a Saturday or Sunday. Mm. And, you know, fuel the work required means that depending on the intensity of the session, this is more specific to carbohydrate intake for people listening as well, is that you might have a kind of reasonably high carbohydrate intake for your high intensity session on a, on a Tuesday. You might scale that back a little bit on a Thursday because you're not doing as much work. And then you want to put more carbohydrate back into the system before your match. And the way I kind of view kind of carbohydrate intake for people is if you use the analogy that your body has a fuel tank much like your car has a has a fuel tank and carbohydrate essentially is what you put into that tank to fill it up with fuel so on tuesday you might be doing say like just for quote you're going to drive 80 kilometers so you need to put in enough fuel that you're going to be able to go 80 kilometers whereas on thursday you might only be doing like a 40 kilometer trip so you're going to need it doesn't require as much fuel and then for a game day, just depending on you don't know how the game's going to go, if you want to prepare as, as best as you can, you probably, say for example, you're driving down to, to Kerry, you probably want to gonna fill the fuel, your tank up as much as possible. So you have a full tank going down. Um, but there are caveats as well. So if you do want the fuel, much like if you are driving down to Kerry, you can always stop off at petrol stations. So there are stops in gameplay so especially now with the water breaks where you can get you can have after your warm-up you've got an opportunity to top up a carbohydrate there uh, like you have water breaks now and we'll have carbohydrate gels and stuff on the side for water breaks because if you has another opportunity to kind of for people to top up that they do need you've got half time and another water break so it's not the end of the world if you do kind of underfuel provided you know that you're aware you have these other opportunities you know so you've got like petrol stations along the way down to carry so if you have left yourself short there are opportunities to kind of the top up and because sometimes people are too so concerned about kind of over overfueling almost mm. just there is you do have opportunities because some people have good issues when it comes to to carbohydrate loading and, and so on so it 
there are opportunities to kind of manage that as well by just fueling carbohydrate regularly during exercise. Geez, that's a, that's an excellent analogy. It works out. It checks out the whole way, like with the, ah, yeah. the petrol stops and everything. I love that. Uh, in terms of carbohydrate loading, um, would you recommend it at a senior level or would you recommend, you know, like the, the one day loading, the three day loading, or would you recommend just increasing your carbohydrate intake in the days prior while kind of tailoring off or tapering off your intensity levels in exercise or your volume? Yeah, so so it depends on the day. So we'll we'll normally train on a Thursday and they might have a match on a Saturday. So the Friday the Friday is when we'll kind of recommend players to quote unquote carbohydrate load. Now for carbohydrate load, like it's 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 a different amount for whatever sport you're doing. So like Tour de France cyclists are sometimes doing up to nineteen grams per kg. Um soccer, you're recommended eight grams per kg. Rugby is more like six grams per kg. We try and kind of give a guidance towards about six grams per kg for GA players. It might fall in like the five to seven um, gram per kg range. Um, and the basis of that is that you're doing, presumably you're doing a little bit less work than soccer. Um, but, and as well, so they are kind of topping up that tank just, just to make sure. But there's less of an emphasis now on kind of um, fueling up on game day. So what, what we'll try to do is kind of, depends on the on the person some people track the food some people want plans that you that you give out like kind of templates these are example carbohydrate loading plans whereas other people what we'll just say is you know increase your carbohydrate intake on the plate by about 20 percent you know just as a simple rule you know you reduce reduce your fatty intake a little bit and just whatever you would have had like carbohydrate on the plate just increase it by 20 percent so you're getting that little bit more in compared to if you were doing the training session so then they're not kind of going in overfueled and that's another thing as well on, on game day itself. You know, if you read the recommendations for pre-match meal, they're one to four grams per kg, which is huge. You know, if you're thinking about some, a lot of players are probably only eat about four grams per kg during a whole day, during the week. Yeah. Um, so, so to have that in one meal is massive. And the updated UEFA statement even goes like one to two, or sorry, one to three grams per kg. And three grams per kg is still a, a massive amount so uh we always aim for kind of one to two grams per kg in the pre-match meal and that gives a good enough buffer for individualization so some people you know they don't like having big match meals because the kind of guidance we give is kind of you want to be fueled up but you don't want to be bloated to the point that you know you're gonna feel too full or too heavy and you're going to be sitting in your stomach so I'll say one to two grams per kg, or we just give like a very like rough number of 100 grams or something like that. But in saying that, sometimes we'll provide pre-match meals um, for them as well. But And actually, I shouldn't note, we've got some pretty intelligent um, goalkeepers who just bring their own pre-match meal because they know that they're not going to be doing as much work. So they don't need to carbohydrate lower. They don't, they, they, they're kind of trying to manage their body composition and they know that they're going to be standing in the goal. So they might not have a massive carb load and then what they'll do during the game is maybe have some gels or drinks just so that they're keeping like cognitive um, performance going. So that, that's, that's what they like to do for their strategy. And I should probably encourage them in that as well because, you know, you're not, you're not covering the – I think the goalkeepers don't even get GPS. That's a little distance to cover. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. That's it's just back to the, the idea of fuel for the work required, yeah. Um, just on the topic of the, the game day – so what I'm reading now recently is that it's important to get through to players. And like I've experienced this myself. I played basketball, right? And the game day fueling was the big thing for me. It was the pinnacle. That's when you get all your nutrition for the match, you know. But it's shown that it's the days leading up that are most important. And depending on when you eat your meal, your last meal before the match, it's not going to have a huge impact on your actual fuel stores. Like when you go back to the petrol tank, your carbohydrate, your store carbohydrate. Yeah. Um, if you have it like six to eight hours before, maybe, but like normally you probably, your footballers will probably, or hurlers will probably have it three to five hours before, and that's not going to have a huge impact. It's the days yeah. leading up. Do you, do you try to, do you follow that kind of idea as well? Yes. So the, like I said, like, we always think like the day before is when you're going to get most of your fueling done. And the way, again, if I pull back to my car analogy, the way I kind of explain it, explain it to them is that your body is like a car. 
Um, and, but when you go to bed at night, you don't turn off the engine. So the engine's just ticking over during the night. And if you leave your car engine running overnight, it will still use up a little bit of fuel. So you're still going to be using like liver glycogen to fuel the brain when you're sleeping and stuff like that. So what you're doing the next day is you're literally just toughing back up. So it doesn't have to be a massive carb load or, or any of that type of thing. You just want to top back up the, your fuel stores because your car has been left ticking over overnight. And yeah. that's how we kind of implement it so that all the fuel and so on. What we, what we might do as well is on on the Thursday night after training, we'll when we get our meal after Thursday night, it will get because at the moment we're in takeaway boxes at the moment because of COVID. But we'll get like most typically we'll get like a rice based dish. Uh, and again, there's there's no science reason. This is a pragmatic reason because you can get more carbs per, like per square inch or per square centimeter in a box when you fill it with rice than if you were to fill it with potatoes or pasta. So then you're almost starting that kind of carb fueling process after the training session on a Thursday. Mm. Cause we're finishing training at eight or nine o'clock at night. So you're coming, coming into that kind of 36 to 40 hour before the game anyway. So it's an easy way to get carbohydrate into the players after that Thursday night where you're going to get a little bit more carbohydrate, you know, per actual size takeaway box than if you were to get like carbo or a pass to make this or particularly with potatoes potatoes can be quite filling and quite big and get less carbohydrate in there for the size so we'll mm. start we'll, we'll start it then even though maybe some of the players don't realize we're starting it then we'll start it then and then kind of the friday kind of advising them again continue fueling up and then saturday morning depending on what time of game is you're just thinking about you know you just want it to be eating so that you're keeping the fuel tank topped up and it's not so much cramming in loads of fuel to, to perform gotcha and I actually had one, um, I threw the question box on the Instagram and sorry, no, it's going to go on a bit, but uh, I have so many questions for you, but a, a very high level athlete, I don't think he's in football, but reached out and asked, there's a stigma or rumors that I shouldn't eat late at night. And I, I kind of got back to him on my own answer just to keep him ticking over. I was just saying that if you're an athlete at a high level, you should absolutely just dismiss that. Um, but it can be a problem. And I've noticed this with the footballers I worked with after training, you know, you have an up, like a upset stomach or you're not very hungry and it could be, you know, GA trainings during the week on that Thursday night, your example, it could be nine or 10 o'clock by the time they get home and are ready to eat. What do you kind of, I know I used to give my, those players the idea of a smoothie, you know, you're getting high GI carbs in, it's kind of like a drink. It's not as filling as food, but do you have any kind of recommendations you give for that? Yeah, so we'll normally eat straight. We'll get food delivered straight after, so that we really start oh, yeah. training. But <clears throat> we do something similar for game day, for example. So even though, like on game day, we'll get a meal delivered straight after. But if you're talking about that recovery process and you're trying to kind of nail that recovery, I, I, I also similar to you is that on a match day, I'll give like recipes and rec- or recommendations or advise people to kind of have recovery smoothies because it's a very easy way to get. You, you can fill a lot of calories, you can get a lot of carbohydrate, you can, you can get a lot of protein, and you can also start working in some vegetables and berries and stuff, which are, you know, especially if you've got players who don't eat vegetables, which there are some, I've got like players, so if you can get an easy way to work in, you're getting basically almost like a balanced meal in a, in a smoothie form, and then, as you said, it can be really easy on the stomach, really easy to consume, doesn't require any cooking or prepping, which can be a pain if you're coming in late at night, now, I wouldn't like to cook if I was coming home after training at 9 or 10 at night. You want something which is very easy to make. Um, five minutes, you get a couple of ingredients, throw it in the blender, and you can knock it down the hatch. That are another one that I kind of recommend on, on the same lines is kind of some sort of like recovery bowl where you could have like a yogurt, a Greek yogurt based, mm. based dish. And you can put in some honey and berries and fruit and banana to try to get in your kind of carbohydrate. Maybe if you had like some granola or muesli that you could dump in as well and then again it's something which is practically is very quick to make which i think is important when you're coming in that late at night but also it's still kind of getting your nutrition principles of you're getting a hit of protein in there you're getting some carbohydrate in there and then as long as you're getting in some fluids as well although that's an inter- interesting addendum to that is that i'll often have people because you're training late at night in ga people are trying to rehydrate after training they'll often end up getting up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom because they're drinking late in the evening. So that what I kind of recommend to them players is 
Um, so two things. So one is I always say like we have electrolytes. So I'll give them electrolyte tablets and say, you know, have these in, in, in all your drinks. So don't just drink straight water because from working in like uh, combat sports, you know, that if you have electrolytes in the fluid that you drink, you urinate less. So your body retains more of the fluid. So that's one strategy. And then another one I always say is that, you know, don't worry about getting rehydrated tonight when you go home. Just just as long as you're kind of get rehydrated. Say like aim for lunchtime the next day. So when you get up in the morning, have a pint of water first in. Because I'd rather them be a little bit under or dehydrated going to bed, get a full night's sleep, than trying to rehydrate going to bed and waking up in the middle of the night and disturbing the sleep and so on. So that's why I kind of say like midday the next day is a good day or a good time to aim for. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, definitely going to use that. And on that note of impaired sleep, does eating right before bed, is there important implications there for impacting sleep quality? Yeah, if you listen to some sleep researchers, they'll say kind of an hour, you'd want to leave it at least an hour before bed because you're going to have to start digesting that digestion process and it can disturb sleep because you have this kind of conflict between, you know, some of the and the research isn't fantastic in nutrition and sleep by the way like it's, it's not great so i wouldn't hang my hat on any, on any of this stuff but so you have like from a sleep perspective you're going to be probably leave it about an hour or particularly if you're having a big meal or a proper meal you want to leave it about an hour but then you have like the kind of quote-unquote sport and nutrition research saying you know oh have protein before bed like i personally think an hour away protein is fine like i don't think you need i think some people interpret the research of consuming protein in the evening as you need to have like a protein shake immediately before going to sleep where i personally think if you're eating like an hour within that kind of hour to 90 minutes you're still going to get the same kind of benefits of having protein prior to sleep especially when your total protein intake is the same so i'd I'd kind of be especially late in the evening i'd be trying to prioritize sleep and one of the important things is getting into a routine. So if you if you always eat an hour before bed, then that, if that's your routine, then try getting into that routine. Gotcha. Yeah, I had a good conversation with Alan about that. And he was just saying, you know, people are so focused on the minor details like timing when it comes to protein. And it's it's the research is showing that it's total daily protein intake. That's the key, you know. Um, yeah. But... On the hydration idea, what's kind of just an overarching strategy you give for like making sure players are hydrated without them having to, I don't know, be very, very accurate or specific? And maybe what's some way you get them to monitor their hydration status? Yeah, so what we'll have in normally pre COVID, it's harder now because we're not really in the dressing room so much, but we'll have like a weighing scales in the dressing room and like a whiteboard or marker. So before training and after training, the players will kind of write down, they'll come in, weigh themselves, write down on the board and then weigh themselves after training. So then they have an idea of how much weight they're losing during the training session. And they can kind of have an idea of how much they need to rehydrate. And what I'll also do is when we have to change things back up is just like on behind like the urinals or a toilet so they'll stick like a urine chart on the wall. Again, it's just a visual, you know, me looking at it when you're, when you're pissing. And it's more of a prompt. Like I don't, it's not like I, do anything religious or anything like that it's literally i don't even say anything to players i just stick it up there as a visual prompt so kind yeah, of like yeah. almost like almost like a nudge uh, and then something else as well i've started doing is that um at the moment the, we're not training like gym sessions to get together or anything like that so they use an app with the strength conditioning coach and when they're logging their training sessions i'll get them to log their body weight that day and what I do is I kind of like, um, it's more so around kind of matches to see that they're recovering is that when they're logging their body weight, if someone has like a big dip in, in body weight and it doesn't pop back up, that kind of red flag for me that they're kind of dehydrated or, or glycogen, um, not, not replenishing their glycogen. Cause I know for example, with team sky, that's what they use as a major red flag during the tour is that if a rider wakes up the next day with a lower body rate, they're using that as a pretty big red flag that either one, they're dehydrated, or two, they're not replenishing glycogen because you're not going to get big shifts in body fat in that short space of time. Yeah. So you're kind of big shifts, big shifts in body mass are maybe filled in the stomach, but then you'll, you'll also have like dehydration and glycogen replenishment. So from a recovery perspective, I'll kind of monitor that as well just to make sure that they're not, if, if someone does dip down one day, that they're popping back up body weight to make sure that they are actually rehydrating, particularly like. It might be normal for them to drop down the day after a match, but for me, two days post-match is when I want to start people see people returning to baseline. 
like I tell people, you know, midday the next day is when you should be getting back to your normal body weight. But I kind of personally use two days post game, so forty eight hours post game as a as my kind of recovery stick because we don't train again. I was like, they'll have a gym session on that day, an upper body gym session, but we won't do a collective pitch training session until like three days after. So that forty hour period is when I kind of use my kind of recovery thing because we'll also measure, you know, like muscle soreness and sleep uh, and fatigue and i want all of these measures popping back up and like i'm i'm piloting this at the moment i'm like trying to collect also my own data so that i can have like more individual insight into our team so like if body weight is not recovering is that associated with them like having poor sleep or out of fatigue or soreness scores higher so that we can identify you know if someone isn't recovering why aren't they recovering so where can we focus our attention to kind of Either maybe this bit of education, or maybe they just need the resources, or we can kind of focus in on one area where they're not kind of recovering properly. Yeah, it's like you're doing your own big case study, really. Yeah, because and this is something else which, um, like again, I took from James Morton is that in science, like we're it's very important that we collect reliable and valid data, you know, because in that's the way like science works. But we should really be doing the same in in the field because if we're if the data that we're collecting in the field isn't valid and reliable, if it's not publishable quality, well then how good is the information that you're getting on your players? You know, if it's not, if it's not publishable quality, it's not publishable quality for a reason. I'm not saying that you have to publish everything or that you should, the goal should be to publish everything, but rather the goal should be to pub or the goal should be to have publishable data because then you're getting accurate and reliable insights into your players. Because if, if it's not accurate and reliable insights, I think, crap in crap out if you're getting crap data you know on your players the, the kind of information you can kind of relate relate to them is probably also going to be reflective of that wow yeah i like that that's that's really really well said yeah because like publication of something is just one way of analyzing uh like you say collected data coaching and coaching practices is the other is another way and so yeah just because they're more lay, we'll say, or general, less technical, doesn't mean that they should be working off less technical data. Yeah, because the quality is important. Like in, in practice, in my opinion, I think you should have really good, like, because I was saying, you're only going to do me a disservice either to yourself or to your players if the data that you're getting is, is bad quality data. Mm. Um, so, like, so even if you're doing like skin falls or DEXA or hydration testing, you should still follow best practice research standards because that means you're going to get best practice information to use with the team. You know, you, you want you want good data because otherwise you're just probably ticking, it's probably a tick the box exercise otherwise. You know, you're, you're doing something just to be seen to do something. You're collecting some data just to be seen to collecting data as opposed to collecting good data, which is going to give you good insights about the team. Um, then hopefully inform decision-making about whatever performance practices that you want to implement. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, come here. So we are going on 50 minutes there. I have literally a bunch more questions for you, but if you're, I know you're busy with that research paper. So I was going to actually uh, split this into two parts. Are you good to keep going for the second part now, or do you want to do it another day? No, no, I'm good. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So I'll just split it into parts and this will be the first part over. All right. That was part one of the two part series. The second part is of course available right now. This is just a little sign off. It was just because the session went on and I wanted to split it into two so that you might be able to listen to this at another time. The second part, so in that, Mark and myself go into a, a deep dive on caffeine, so supplementing, and he actually explains supplementation recommendations for different positions in GA and how it might differ based on requirements. Um, and then we also talk about different sources of caffeine and so why drinking a cup of coffee might not be the optimal way of consuming caffeine for performance also we go into safe practice for supplements um, especially at senior and county level where you can be subject to testing and uh, he just talks about like the barriers 
in buying supplements and the amount that can have prohibited or contaminated substances. And other than that, we talk about you know his protocol for match days and the supplements he'll have ready, the food or um, snacks he'll have at the games or at trainings. Off-season recommendations, obviously, I, I kind of pose the question, like, we're in a lockdown now, it's similar to an injury or an off-season, what are your nutrition recommendations? And he kind of goes into that. And then finally, I ask him, like, what challenges he's faced. So plenty more content in part two. Hope you enjoyed part one. And yeah, that's it. Have a great day. Don't forget to give a review and a rating. Peace.